This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Netta Magbule from the University of Toronto. Netta is the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans, and the Everyday Politics of Race with Stanford University Press. It's a pleasure to have her join us today. Welcome, Netta. Hi, thank you for having me. Netta, can you tell us about The Limits of Whiteness? Yes. Uh, so my book came out this past year, and it's looking at how one population in the U.S., Iranian-Americans, live what I call is a racial paradox. Um, they, like others from the broad Middle East and North Africa, are counted as white by the federal government. Um, and they also, as immigrants, come to the United States with their own myths and narratives about a kind of uh, whiteness that uh, is endogenous to Iran. And yet um, they experience everyday interactions in the United States that are in some ways closer to those that are experienced by communities of color, whether this is you know workplace discrimination all the way through street level harassment and hate crimes. And so um, my book is trying to understand this paradox and to situate it within theories of race and immigration where Middle Easterners have not often been placed in the literature and to also go back in time and sort of expose the longer history to say this isn't just a 9-11 thing or even in the case of Iranians, like a 1979 revolution thing, but that this has actually been a feature um, of Middle Eastern American life for centuries. It's funny because this has a lot in common with what we were just talking about with millennials, where we were saying that, you know, you have this underlying continuous change of time and people want to lump it into chunks, but, you know, lumping does kind of violence to reality. And uh, here we're talking about uh, people drawing lines, not in time, but in space, right? So you have this issue that um, Persians are considered white by the government, although not necessarily by, you know, people they interact with on an everyday basis. Um, But uh, South Asians, many of whom look very similar to Persians, um, are not considered white, they're considered Asian. Um, Because you just kind of draw, the federal government kind of draws a line uh, somewhere on like the Persian-Afghanistan border, the Iranian-Afghanistan border, and says, uh, to this side, you're white, to that side, you're Asian. Yeah, exactly. And so... uh Something that I look at that precisely is about this uh, this line that you're describing, Gabriel, is um, in chapter two of my book, I go into the history of racial prerequisite cases. Um, so some listeners may know this history, but you know, for a very long time in the United States, for an immigrant to naturalize, he had to be white. And so uh, many different groups that were considered in between would have to go to local and federal court and to plead their case as to why they're, they and their group that they represented should be considered white. And so... um, Hey, Netta, actually, can I... Just point of clarification, uh, because I've always had a question about this. Um, I thought that you could be white or you could be black, right? To be naturalized, but that no one wanted to claim blackness, so... Uh Uh-huh. That's very interesting. So 
in the corpus of cases that I'm looking at, and so what I was doing was sort of figuring out where different groups referenced Iran. Um, this was always in the, the context of a plaintiff or a claimant going to court and soliciting the white side. And so I wasn't working with the documents um, that, that would have represented any other claims, but uh, you know, I think that's absolutely the way that it was written, right, was that um, the, the two groups that could have a claim to citizenship were, um, you know, blacks in the United States and also um, people who, who were either assumed to be white and that assumption just was, you know, fine or people that went to court to, to claim that. On what, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like if you take this on its own terms, on what basis did they make the argument for whiteness? Was it that they phenotypically are more or less white? Was it that Persians and Indo-European language or what? Yeah, exactly. So there was a variety of different evidence that groups would use in court. Um, as you would imagine, like much of it was social. Mm -hmm. So it was things like um, who, so if it's an Armenian claimant, let's say, or an Arab claimant, mm -hmm. um, if they themselves or their relatives had intermarried with like other quote unquote white people, so meaning European Americans, specifically Protestants, like wasps, yeah. um, then that was actually brought to court as a piece of social evidence. Um, some of this did have to do with uh, characterizations of skin tone. So if someone was, quote, a trifle olive complexioned, that would be a basis to drag them into court. Um, uh, there was, uh, you know, expert witnesses like Franz Boas testifying in these racial prerequisites. Well, so this cases is early 20th century then. Yes, okay. uh, through 1952 is when um, the the sort of whiteness and naturalization clause uh, was in play, and so I go to these turn of the century cases, and um, you know I see that although Iranian Americans were not in the United States themselves as immigrants at this time going to court, they show up in other groups as court cases quite often as a kind of reference group. And so I say, even though they're not present in the U.S., they're sort of conjured up like these ghosts in the margins. And so among Armenian and Arab claimants, uh, typically at this time in American history, these immigrants were Christian in religion. So they would go to court and say, hey, we're the white ones from that part of the world. If you want to know who the brown people are in the Middle Middle East, look at the Iranians, right? They're Mohammedans, they're Islamic, they, uh, they're fire-worshipping Zoroastrians, you know, so we're the white people from our part of the world. And the flip side of that was that when you look at the cases featuring South Asian claimants, so this is immigrants from the Indian subcontinent, they would go to court and they would say things like, you know, the linguistic similarities between Sanskrit and Persian, or the fact that, you know, I come from this ethnic group called Parsis, and they were eighth century migration of people out of Persia to India. These are these claims that I'm bringing to court to show that actually me and other Indians are white. And so, uh, you know, I sort of argue in this chapter that this in-between status Iranians have in 2018 is not something new, but in fact, they have been sort of pushed and pulled across the line as needed for over a hundred years. But, but with all of this fighting, your uh, book still talks about the limits of official whiteness, uh, that official whiteness will only bring you so far. Can you give us a sense of uh, what racial official race designations can and can't do? Like, where are these limits? Yeah, um, so, you know, I know... Something that's always been interesting to me is that the federal classification of whiteness also in some ways aligns with what we know in sociology from 
theories of assimilation that like, okay, so whites, um, you know, Iranians are sort of technically considered white and Middle Easterners are too. And if we go to the sociology of immigration, we'd also say like, well, when you look at Iranians, they have pretty high average incomes, you know, high levels of educational attainment. They would sort of be a pretty good fit or an easy fit with how we have theorized, you know, white immigrant sort of assimilation, straight line, classic assimilation. Um, and yet, right. Nonetheless, there are these sort of street level interactions where, um, uh, people from that part of the world who are being ascribed a certain racial identity or perceived as non-white, right? That that's not registering that sort of claim to whiteness or what we know from the literature about assimilation. Uh, that's not registering. And so you see it both sort of in street level interactions, but in the book, I also try to sort of say like, this is actually patterned and this is systematic. Um, I talk about like the case in Beverly Hills, where even among the Iranian 1%, like, you know, the people you would think have really, really made it there in the past 10 years have been this series of residential codes that were passed to try to push Iranians out of that neighborhood and into adjacent neighborhoods because they were perceived as neighbors that people didn't want, whose homes were depressing the property values of other Beverly Hills residents. And so I basically, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of look at um, both cases of like, marginalized Iranian Americans to understand how white is not the best fit to understand their reality, but then to also look at those that like conform, right? Um, that sort of have every benefit homeownership into these exclusive neighborhoods and the ways in which they are still excluded or, try, you know, sort of pushed out in some ways. Sorry, Netta, can I ask a question? So, so, so there, so part of the conversation is about how other people see Iranians, um, whether other people see them as white, you know, not just thinking about the government. Um, but, you know, how do Iranians think of themselves? And are there generational effects, you know, not to bring up the whole millennial debate again, <laughs> but, um, but, um, but generational effects, you know, thinking, you know, first, second, third, generation um iranians yeah and and yeah that's such a great question that's really like the the nut of the book is about um how you when you look at an immigrant group like Iranians, that first generation who's coming to the U.S. is bringing with them a kind of socialization and self-understanding that actually sort of contradicts some of the racial logics of the United States. And so um, they bring with them what I describe in the book is this Aryan myth or Aryan myth um, that is a sort of invention of the modern Iranian state. Um, it's a nationalistic sort of idea about how they're very exceptional and they have a unique history and it's supposed to help elaborate upon like you know centuries of war with arabs and other and other communities and so um Iranians sort of come, right, in the first generation, for the most part, with a sense of their own sort of authentic claim to whiteness. Um, and yet, for second generation kids, so the ones that are born in the U.S., um, I think even when they're hearing those messages at home, right, or they're interacting with federal forms that show that Iranians would be classified as white, that that type of stuff falls flat. And I think it falls flat for, you know, at least two reasons. Like, one is sort of these these face-to-face face interactions, right, that lend um, credence to this idea that like, oh, well, maybe there are some groups that, that sort of 
are not experiencing whiteness the way that they technically should be. But then also, I think um, young people in the U.S., even if you go to a really crummy public school that has like a terrible social studies curriculum, I think you do end up learning to some extent that the history of civil rights in the United States is characterized by pan-ethnic coalition building. And so I think the young people who are born here and they go through institutions here, right, learn that like the Japanese and the Koreans back at home, like they've had a sort of imperial war and that like they're not groups that necessarily have a shared history, but that there is this kind of strategic essentialism that you can form a banner around, you know, an identity marker like Asian and to be able to actually mobilize from that place. So I think second generation Iranian youngsters like come up and they're saying, you know, I'm bullied for the way I look. I don't feel like I'm recognized at white. And furthermore, I'm seeing around me, right, that like sort of racial justice movements and pan-ethnic coalition building is the way forward. So I'm going to befriend, right, sort of other marginalized young people I know in my community or my school. I'm going to sort of connect with uh, young people of color and to kind of mobilize, right, around a new identity. Most Americans' uh, exposure to Iranian Americans is through the Bravo TV show, Shahs of Sunset. Uh, I know of this show. I didn't really watch it. I know you've written on it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the TV series, your views on the show and the messages it sent? <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, another reason why I think you know it was important for me to sort of address the the Beverly Hills 1% is both because if they're experiencing like this really weird form of racialization in their neighborhoods, then I thought that was sort of empirically interesting, but also that that is, like you said, the dominant image of Iranians in the United States is that uh, this reality show on the cable network Bravo features like these young people who work as like real estate agents or, you know, sort of trying to become media moguls and it's very similar to like real housewives or any of that sort of ryan seacrest genre of show where it's about sort of their love lives and their social lives and that kind of stuff um and i think that when people hear that i'm both iranian american and a sociologist they would expect me to sort of level that like more typical critique you know that like this is a very one-sided view of the community and it's so materialistic and shallow and all of that is to be sure really true but um i think you're referencing like a little op-ed that i had published in salon mm -hmm. several years ago where i sort of said you know like i'm on the job market and i feel like i'm constantly having to talk about shots of sunset <laughs> when i go have all these interviews with profs yeah. so let me actually break it down for you about the way i feel about the show um, which is that you know like as with so many things like it's actually much more complicated and it's a very interesting text you even see um you know sort of hints of like the Aryan myth and this sort of Persian exceptionalism that I talk about in my book that does get demonstrated throughout the show. But then also like they'll, you know, translate sometimes when the cast members are speaking in Persian and they're usually talking SH about people when they switch into Persian. And so you see them like leveling critiques at white Americans and sort of talking smack about, you know, European Americans and stuff. And that's not necessarily expected. And so there are these like funny little moments where some of these paradoxes that I'm talking about in my book, actually, they show up and they're very authentic to the fabric of everyday life, I think. 
You know what, Netta? It's so interesting that you said SH. And it makes me reflect that I don't think there has been one swear word on no, this no, uh, no. episode. I, I yet, which is very rare. Yeah. So thank you for thank you for raising <laughs> Oh, you well, did. She uh, can still I raise the level, say, even if I lower raising it. the level. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the first time. Earnest and sincere millennial side coming out. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about that show, and I haven't watched very many episodes um, of the show um, at all. Um, okay, I, I confess. I think I may have. I may have watched four or five, just because I found it like actually quite riveting that um, number one, they portrayed, and I, and, I, and I basically only saw men portrayed. So that was kind of an interesting thing to me. So this very like specific type of Iranian Persian masculinity um, that I found to be so foreign at least to my interactions with Persian men. Um, and I'm wondering, I, I mean, I, and I know we're not supposed to use our personal experiences here. I, in watching it, I felt like they were all caricatures, but uh, is, is there, a, I mean, is that more the interaction of like a certain ethnic identity with um, LA itself? Yeah, that's an awesome question because um, I think, you know, uh, the young people in my study, they come from all four corners of the U.S. There were 84 research participants um, and also through the Midwest, too. And so it was important for me to feature some uh, regional diversity because um, there is this sort of modal idea of the quote-unquote L.A. Persian, right? Mm -hmm. There's like Iranian America and then L.A. Persians. And, we sort of, and I grew <laughs> up in Portland, Oregon, right? And so this idea of who the L.A. Persian is and how he or she is different from your sort of like ordinary uh, other Iranian person that lives in that country. Um, that's definitely a thing, right? That LA has its own um, code of conduct and its own subcultures, like in some ways. Um, so I think what you're picking up on really is that specificity of um, this community's formation in that city. But I also think like that's kind of why maybe you were riveted with the show is that these types of reality shows, when they have, I think, like a local sense of place, um, that's what makes them very, very interesting. And so th the show does a good job, I think, of really um, characterizing Tehranjalis and some of like the family dynamics or the social and class dynamics, right? That make that a unique yeah. place. Now, is Iranian and Persian, are they synonymous? Because I've been corrected. Uh, I've, I've said Iranian and had people correct Persian. Are they direct synonyms or are there subtle differences in their meanings? Well, they're definitely used as synonyms, I think, in everyday speech. But when, obviously, like, uh, if I'm publishing work or um, even, you know, sort of in my speech, I've grown to be more precise with the language that I use. And so um, Persian is technically an ethnicity and Iranian is a nationality. So in the country of Iran right now, there are, like, a variety of different ethnic groups who are recognized by the state, right, as sort of, like, rightful citizens. But that hasn't necessarily always always been the case and it, before 
Persian, right, was the dominant group. And so um, to call oneself Persian um, has also in the United States had um, this backstory of how like in 1979 with the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis, the word Iran became somewhat stigmatized. And so the idea was that like some people retrenched into the label of Persian, that that's, you know, the uh, like sort of famous clip from the comedian Maz Jobrani is that Persian is like the cat, you know, in the rug and Iranian means like terrorist. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's that's another reason why I see, particularly in the second generation, um, young people who have this sort of like more oppositional identity uh, post 9-11, they sort of embrace the word Iranian and they say, well, that's actually what my country is called, like the country that my family is from, and that Persian is an exclusive term. I don't agree with it. And furthermore, you know, that like I don't want to sort of play those old games of trying to assimilate or be somebody that I'm not. And so I don't want to sort of retrench into the label Persian. I'm Iranian. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury, and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.